We're in the middle of a series right now called Reset, Why Discipleship Isn't About Trying Harder, and uh, it's named after a book of the same title uh, that's out in the bookstore. And if you wanted to grab that book and kind of delve into the details of all that we're talking about, it's out there and you can get that after service. Uh, throughout the series, we've been uh, having a conversation about who Jesus really is, what he wants, and how we can respond to him. We've been drawing some pretty strong distinctives between the idea of embracing Christianity and being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Christianity is a belief system. It's a theology. It's a doctrine. It has practices. Uh, it pr- is always presented in a subculture. There's North American Christianity, for example. And it's, it's good. It's bad. There's, there's been great, wonderful pieces of Christianity. There's been negative parts of Christianity. It kind of is what it is. It's, it's kind of fine in there. It's actually not what Jesus calls us to. Jesus calls us to discipleship. 294 times in the New Testament, he says, I want you to be my disciple. A disciple simply means a follower. I want you to follow me. I'm not asking you to believe certain things necessarily. I'm not asking you to practice religion in a certain way. I'm asking you to love me, to know me, and to follow me and come after me. And so Jesus talks about that in terms of relationship, uses terms like brother, friend, uh, adopted sons and daughters, these kind of words. It's all that deep, deep relationship. So we've been talking that through. Last weekend, Pastor Tony was here. Uh, Tony pastors our Medina East Campus and came back and talked to us about not simply being respectful of God or observant of religion, but actually the personal relationship, the intimate relationship is what God is after. We've talked about this, that how, how do I become Christ-like? And we said it, it's, not, it's not tied to trying harder, it's actually tied to receiving more, that God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. I am crucified with Christ, Christ is now alive in me. So it's participating and receiving what God has already done as opposed to me kind of bearing down and trying harder to, uh, to make Christ-likeness happen. So it's been a great conversation. It's in-depth. Most of us have walked away needing some Advil afterwards, which is great, mission accomplished. And if you've missed it, encourage you to go watch it online. Go to our website, graceohio.org. You can watch or listen to everything for free there. You can get a podcast for free through iTunes if you want. Or you can pick up the book and, and really dive into it if you want. We encourage you to do that. I think the general response to these conversations has been one of freedom. That's that's what I've been hearing people say, hearing you say to me is, man, I was so bogged down in this or I was taught this and this is untangling all of that mess and now Christ and the word of God makes sense to me and we're excited about that. So I encourage you to kind of take hold of that and take advantage of it. This weekend, I wanna push deeper into the conversation but it's going to have more of a practical outcome, okay? And so I want to talk about how this relationship with God, this oneness or what Jesus calls yoking, when I, when I become of one mind and one heart with God, that is going to bleed over into my relationships with other people. Uh, the Bible actually is very, very clear that I cannot love God and not love people, If I say that I love God, but I hate my brother, then Christ isn't in me. So as Christ renews my mind and I think like Jesus, I take on the mind of Christ and he transforms my my life, my heart into his likeness. As I think like and follow like and respond like Christ, I'm going to love people. The passion of my life is gonna become the people that God brings into my life. And that's where the Christian life really gets its kind of its roots and its traction, and it's where the rubber hits the road, where I start to practice Christ-likeness as I live and love and and, uh, serve the people around me. So we're going to talk about that. How does Jesus meet the needs of others through you, through Christ's followers? How does he interact with us? What's the mission that he kind of sends us on? How does all that work? And we're going to dig at this a little bit. Now, in order for us to to be used by Christ to meet the needs of another, we need to see that person through the the eyes or the lenses of Jesus. 
So let's lay that down as a base first. How does Jesus view people, humanity, and how would he kind of interact or evaluate humanity as he was interacting with them? So if you got your Bibles, grab them and open up to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, there's some there under the chairs. You can use those. It's page 680 in those Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible of your own or a newer copy of the Bible, please just take that with you. We'd love for you to have it, so just take it and keep it. If you're electronic, we use the Version app, and you can uh, download that or open it and then click on live. Our zip code is 44333, and you'll find us right there. Matthew chapter 9, I just want to give you a quick overview of Jesus interacting with a bunch of people. And I want to I show you kind of what he would be thinking, doing, how he would respond to the needs of those people as they were brought to him or as he came across them. Verse 1, chapter 9, Matthew, Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, came to his own town. When he got there, some men brought him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. And at this point, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain such evil thoughts in your hearts, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the son of man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat and go home. And then the man got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to a man. Drop down to verse 18. Uh, While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, my daughter has died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak And she said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her, take heart, daughter, he said, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house then and saw the noisy crowd and the people playing pipes, he said, go away, the girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. And after the crowd had been put out, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. And news spread throughout the region. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came in and he asked them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this, but they went out spread the news about this all over the region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Verse 35, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. So Matthew chapter nine is, I call it the the Jesus Heal-O-Rama tour, right? I mean, he's just like healing, you're healed, you're healed, everybody gets a car, right? It's just, he's he's just going on this healing thing and, and It's a great overview, an example of kind of the whole of the New Testament, or at least the Gospels, where Jesus was on earth. And he's just interacting with people, and you just see him person after person after person after person. And it's fascinating to think through how he interacts with those human beings. When Jesus interacts, interacts with these people, he interacts with them kind of on every strata of their humanity, right? So he interacts with them physically. You're blind, you can see. You're paralyzed, you can walk. You're bleeding, now you're not. You're dead, now you're alive. You know, he interacts with them physically. He interacts with them actually economically, and you have to know the culture. Why was it such a big deal to have a disability in the ancient world? It it was more than, I wish I could walk. I I don't like being paralyzed. Much more than that, 
In the ancient world, if you had a disability, you were forever doomed to poverty and, and almost slavery. So when a person said, I need to see, or I need to walk, or I can't quit, that meant a lot to them because it meant I, I can't support myself. I, I'm bleeding, I can't get married. If you're a woman in the ancient world, if you can't marry and have kids, you had no value. You just basically wound up a prostitute. See, so Jesus is looking at that. He's interacting with them emotionally, right? When the synagogue leader comes and says, my daughter has died, that's an, that's an emotional plea. It's not a theologic plea, theological plea, right? He's not looking and saying, you know, I, I read in my uh, Ryrie study guide that uh, you are the giver of life. I'd like to apply that theology to, no, this is a dad comes in and says, my, my daughter's dead, help me, see? And Jesus responds to that. He, he responds to an emotional plea. And then he's interacting with them spiritually. Your sins are forgiven, the demons cast out. In fact, it's fascinating how he kind of summarizes the end of chapter nine. He looks to his disciples, he says, look into the harvest field. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. He doesn't say the physical needs are abundant. Ask the Lord of the harvest to raise up doctors and nurses. He doesn't say the economic needs are overwhelming. Ask, ask the Lord of the harvest to cause man to fall from it. He doesn't say the emotional needs are incredible. You know, ask the Lord of the harvest to make everybody's problems go away. He's, the harvest is the gospel of salvation. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the harvest field. Well, how are those workers going to work when they get to the harvest field? They're going to work in a Christ-like manner. How did Jesus work the harvest field? Well, he worked it by engaging people at their point of need. Jesus is illustrating and showing his followers that, that you engage people. People's needs are invitations. They're doorways that you can walk through connect relationally and draw people through to the heart of God, right? Jesus didn't just snap his fingers and make everybody's sickness go away. There was always a physical and a spiritual connection. You don't separate the need for a savior from somebody's physical needs. You see that their need is an invitation to express the heart of God to meet that need, and then ultimately to draw them into this loving relationship to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And Jesus did this all the time, right? And he would say, that's what I want my disciples to do, right? I don't want my disciples, my followers, to stand on the street corner and tell the prostitute they better straighten out or they're gonna go to hell. Better knock it off, you're gonna fry. No. How did Jesus interact with a prostitute? He was gracious and loving and told her what was on her heart, connected with her need, and then said, I am your salvation, accept me, then go send no more. He brought her all, the, it wasn't just nice, he brought her all the way through, but he connected with her on that point. So we don't go into the, the, the famous, famine-ravished places of the world, the Hades and the West Africas and the places where we have spent as a church, hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? Sending millions of meals to these kids. Why do we do that? Why don't we just send the gospel? Why don't we just go tell them about Jesus? You know, make sure they know Jesus so when they starve to death, at least they go to heaven. Because it's through that knee that that window opens up. When those kids are praying, they're not praying for good theology. God, just help me to understand the philosophy of suffering and evil. They're not praying, only nerds like me would ask a question like that, right? What are they praying? They're praying, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. If there's something out there, feed me. And God, loving them, hears that prayer. And most of the time, when God responds to a person's prayer, ready? He does it through his followers, God probably isn't going to make manna fall from heaven. What he's probably going to do is let his wealthy followers know of this need so that we can address it. And when those kids eat, they don't say, praise Grace Church, where they say, thank you, 
God. And we, by meeting that need, take that open door and say, there's a God who loves you, who wants a relationship with you. That's why we're here. We want to be used by him and we want to not only make sure that your belly is full, we want to make sure that your soul is satisfied as well. This is where the Apostle Paul takes Christ followers in 2 Corinthians. If you flip over in your Bible, a couple hundred pages to the right, <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this is in part what it means to be a minister of reconciliation. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you look at verse 15, and he died, that's Jesus, he died for all, that those who live, that's his followers, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, <clears throat> we, his followers, regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here, it's Christ that lives in me. It's Christ that's giving me everything that I need for life and godliness. This new thing has been birthed into me. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us, that's a big word, it's circled in my Bible, gave us the ministry of reconciliation that Christ was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us, I circled that one too, the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God was making his appeal through us. Chapter six, verse one, Paul says, we are God's co-workers. So God wants people to know that he loves them, wants them to know that he has provided salvation for them. I want you to know who I am, I want you to be reconciled, or the easy definition of that is I want you to be made right with God, okay? So to his followers, he has committed to his followers this ministry or this work of reconciliation. So when I look at people, I no longer look at them through my eyes, I look at them through the eyes of Jesus. I see their humanity, how Christ would see their humanity, and I love them on that level I then participate with God in ministering to them as God's ambassadors, as if Christ himself showed up. I, his follower, or his body, the church, shows up to minister, to tell this truth, to interact with him. Well, how do I know how to minister to people? Well, we do it like Jesus. How did Jesus do it? Well, he met people at their point of need and brought them all the way through to the satisfaction and salvation of their soul. God <clears throat> works through us to meet the needs of other people. And then discipleship, see? Discipleship is participating with God in that process and living that way. It's not going to church, learning the Bible, doing theology and doctrine. Those things are, are very, very good things. It's just not the heart of discipleship. The heart of discipleship is I love as I've been loved. I give as I've been given to. I, I, I live out Christ because my mind's in sync with him and my heart's in sync with him. I like the statement my friend Dave made this the other day. We're talking about this. He said this. He said, it isn't that God is using us as, we were, as if we were pawns in his plan. <clears throat> it's not like that God is playing this big chess game and it's gonna move you. Rather, God is involving us to reconcile the world. It's partnership. We align with him with the, for the completion of his mission on earth. Yoking is the idea of oneness of heart. As I download and experience God's love for me, he renews my mind, he transforms my life. Now I start to love what he loves I think like he thinks, I value what he values. And if I am aligned with God and Christ is kind of taking over the hard drive of my life, I am going to love people because the passion of God's heart is humanity. And I'm going to love my neighbor. Why? Because Christ loves my neighbor. 
And as Christ loves and responds to humanity, most of the time when God shows up in somebody's life, he shows up in the form of his people, as if I am making the appeal directly from Christ himself. So how does this work when we're participating with God to express his heart to someone else? How does it work? It's kind of like this. When someone is uh, scared and alone and they pray, they're going to cry out to God. They're not going to say, God, I'm scared and alone, but their heart's going to cry out to God. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit prays on our behalf when we run out of words, which is often, right? So I'm scared I'm alone. My heart cries out to God. God makes that need known to a Christ follower, and that Christ follower acts as Jesus. He comes as the ambassador, as if Christ himself were there, and offers the friendship and the comfort that God wants them to experience and in which they can experience through this Christ follower who's come on Christ's behalf. When I'm in need of forgiveness, for instance, I've sinned against you, and I ask you forgiveness, and you have downloaded and experienced the depth of God's forgiveness in your own life, and now you want to forgive as you've been forgiven, when I've sinned against you, I ask you for forgiveness, you forgive me, it's as if Christ himself is ministering to me, and by your willingness and readiness to forgive me, you have just demonstrated to me how Christ wants to interact with me. It's as if Jesus himself was making his appeal through you. The physical representation of his heart and mind is gonna show up in the form of a disciple. When I am hungry and the Christ follower feeds me, I didn't pray to you, I prayed to Jesus, but Jesus shows up in the form of the Christ follower. When I'm poor, The Christ follower is my personification of hope. The definition of poverty is not lack of food, lack of clean water, and lack of shelter. It's not the definition of poverty. That could be camping. That's why I don't do it, right? Right? The definition of poverty is lack of hope. Hope is tied to people. I don't have any hope. I have no way of changing my circumstances. I have no way of receiving medicine, receiving food. I have no way to to be self-sustaining. I lack hope. Well, when I cry out to God for hope, that hope is going to show up in the form of the body of Christ, the followers of Jesus. See, they're going to personify God's heart and passion for me. When I'm naked, it's the Christ follower who is my provision. It's how Christ provides for me. When I'm hurting, it's a Christ follower that offers comfort. What, what does it feel like to get a hug from Jesus? It feels a lot like getting a hug from a follower of Christ who is your friend. That follower comes in and is the ambassador, serves as, see, and God meets the need through them. When I'm suffered a loss, the Christ follower is the display of Jesus' sympathy to me. Right? See how that works? The, the old-fashioned way of saying this is, uh, we are the hands and the feet of Jesus. That's how we used to say that in church. It sounds really creepy if you take it out of context, but it's, it's how we say, we are his hands, we are his feet, is the way that I grew up hearing it, and there's a lot of truth in it. That Jesus, the physical representation of Jesus' heart and ministry on earth is usually his followers, who look at other people the way that he looks at them, who've taken on the heart and the mind and the view of Christ and now offer love as Christ would and offer it on his behalf, okay? All right, that's kind of the, the big overview part. And, and it, it's, it's good and it's important. And I wanna try to put some skin on it because I think, there's, I think there's a couple things that make this very difficult to play out. All this can make sense, but now I have to get in the Honda Odyssey minivan, right? And, and I gotta go to Chili's this afternoon and the kids are getting on my nerves. So how do I live this? How do I 
allow God or participate with God to meet the needs of people around me. I think there's two keys. I wrote these down for you. Here's the first one. The first key to participating with Christ and meeting others' needs is seeing myself as someone who participates with Jesus. It, it, it's kind of flipping that switch in our heart and our minds and, and making that paradigm shift and saying, I, that, that's who I am. I am a minister of reconciliation. I am a person who participates with God in meeting the needs. I'm not just a person who has right answers. I'm not just a person who goes to church. I'm not just a person who puts some money in the basket. I am a person, when I get up every day, I interact with God. God is excited to meet me, excited to partner with me, me too. I have his heart and his mind. And now what are we, what are me and God gonna do today? We are gonna participate. I'm gonna participate. We're gonna team up to meet the needs of the people around us. Now, in order to grab that perspective, I have to allow God to renew my mind because that perspective does not come naturally. Naturally, what I'm going to do is regard other people through a worldly point of view, okay? And so this is how this is gonna work. When I regard people through a worldly point of view, their needs sound like obligations to me. When I regard somebody else through a worldly point of view, their needs sound like an obligation to me. So if I'm sitting down to watch the Buckeyes game and I'm just nestling in because I'm not sure who's gonna win until the first quarter's over and we're playing Purdue and now the game's over, right? (laughs) Just saying. When I get a phone call and the person on the other end has a legitimate need I'm going, if I regard them from a worldly point of view, I'm going to hear that as an obligation. Oh, great. I was going to watch the game. Now I got to talk to this person. Terrific. Right? When I go to Applebee's this afternoon and I go to sit down and I want my nachos and the waitress comes over and she says, what can I do for you today? And I say, I want some nachos. And I look at her and I say, how's your day going? And she starts to actually tell me, right? And I'm thinking to myself, I didn't mean it. I just want my nachos. I was just being nice because I figured maybe you recognize me from church, right? So that's all I was doing. Let's just be honest, right? And she starts to tell me that feels like an interruption. I don't actually want to know that you're a single mom and you had a really hard day and you dropped the dishes in the back and you got all these problems. And I I just want my nachos, right? Because I regard you from a worldly point of view. You're expressing needs to me, but they feel like obligations to me. Now, when I take on the heart and the mind of Christ, how does Christ view people's needs? He views them as opportunities to connect to their heart. He would view those very, very differently, right? Matthew chapter nine. So as I take on the mind of Christ and I unite with the heart of Christ, I'm wanting what he's wanting, thinking what he's thinking, seeing people how he's seeing people. Other people's needs are no longer my obligations. They're actually alerts that Christ wants me to minister to them. How do I know who I'm supposed to minister to? Well, people will tell you. What's that sound like? It sounds like their needs, okay? So when I'm having my quiet time with God in the morning and I'm just all jacked up from the weekend because the band was amazing and Jeff was incredible and man, he looked good, Mm, 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 right? And so I'm just all fired up spiritually and I'm sitting down and I, I just want to, God, I want to serve you. I want to, I'll go anywhere in the world for you, God. I'll do anything for you. Just tell me what you want me to do. And your kid walks in, says, Daddy, can I talk to you? Shh, shh I'm praying. Let me know, God, I'll do anything. Daddy, I really need to talk to you. Leave me, I'm praying. Let me know, God, I'll move to Africa. I'll move to Barford. I'll do anything. You name it, I'll do it. Daddy, I'm having a holy time, right? Wait for me, you demon-possessed child. Be mute. Doesn't work. I've tried it. But that, okay? I'm regarding that as an interruption. Track this. It's actually an alert. An alert. See, maybe I'm scared or I'm worried or I'm insecure or 
I have a need. My heavenly Father knows the need because the Spirit will even pray on my behalf, even if I didn't drop to my knees and say, help me, God knows. God loves my kid in this example. So God allows that need to be known to his follower who he wants to interact as an ambassador to minister to the heart of this one who's cried out to him. It's an alert. When I go to Applebee's, I just want my nachos. How's your day? Oh, snap, she actually told me, right? What is that? That is God loving this waitress in this example who has sent me because we believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe that, by the way. I believe that God would have directed me there. Why am I interacting with this human being now? And why is she not getting my nachos? Why is she, why is she treating me like I'm her best friend? Why is this suddenly happening? Because she has cried out to God. And God loves her. So God has sent his follower to minister to her on his behalf. See how that works? My spouse, my kids, my friends, my coworkers, what are needs? The expressed need is an, it's an alert. See? God, I just don't know how far you, so many needs. Where should I start? Well, what's the one that you know about? What, what, what was expressed to you? Now you know where to start. There's people starving all over the world. God, I, how, do you, how do you eradicate poverty? You, you don't, by the way. And so what do you do about it? Well, what need do you know about? See, do you, do you know about this one place or this one person in this one place? And well, they have prayed to God. And God loves them and is responding and is moving his body, his people, his followers to be there to make that appeal on his behalf, Right? So as a follower of Christ, that paradigm shift is huge. When my mind is renewed and my heart is in unison with God, I receive those needs differently. When my kids are lonely and my friends are hurting and my parents need to be served, God allows those needs to be known in part so that his followers can minister on his behalf. So this this is half of it, it's the first key. The first key to participating with God to meet other people's needs is simply the awareness that that's why I'm here. That's what I do. As a follower of Christ, I don't go to church and sing songs and, you know, that's not the whole of my following of Christ. What I, what I do all day, every day is I'm a minister of reconciliation. And this is very often how God will work, right? Now, here's the second part. The second key is much harder than the first key, Okay? So the second key is this. In order to participate with, God, with Jesus to meet the needs of other people, I must be willing to accept Jesus' ministry to me. I have to accept Jesus from another person. Right Now I'm very convinced that giving is much easier than receiving. I'm very convinced of that. Giving is much easier than receiving. If I see somebody who has a financial need, I'm pretty quick to get my wallet out, right? I try to give them whatever cash is in my wallet. That's why I never carry more than 10 bucks. So I can, I can give them that and then feel very self-righteous about it. It's a, it's a great little scenario, right? Very quick to do that. But if I have a financial need, I probably would never make that known. See? And if you ask me, do you have a financial need? No, we're good. Church is very generous to us. That will be my answer. Well, what about this one? Ah, you know, we're we're okay. We're okay. Heidi, she's going to get a third job. She'll be all right. (laughs) See? I would be, my pride would swell up. My independence would swell up. I'm very slow to receive. Very quick to give. Very, very slow to receive. I think that's typical of most of us. I actually believe this very strongly. I believe the hardest truth for us to accept about God, ready, is that he loves us. I believe we have a terrible time accepting that because 
we're convinced, most of us, that we have to do something to earn that love. That's why when we go to interact with God, most of us turn to works instead of relationship. So receiving the fact that God loves us because he chose to love us is a very difficult thing for us to download. So when God sends people into our lives to express his love to us, we're very slow to receive. And when I refuse to receive, I short circuit what God is doing in their life and I short circuit what God is doing in my life. Now there's three kind of barriers that kind of keep us from receiving. The first one is this. The first one is self-reliance. Self-reliance is, is a good virtue in some ways and then it crosses a line and becomes a very negative thing. And most of us in our culture have been taught to be self-reliant. But self-reliance is a barrier from us receiving and it starts in our relationship with God. So God comes and says, you're a wicked sinner doomed to be eternally damned in hell separated from me and we'll say, all right, well, I'll be a better person. I'll handle that. I quit smoking, drinking, and chewing, and dating girls to do and cheering for Michigan, right? I, I got it. I got it, God. No, you can't do anything. Oh, sure I can. Here's a bigger check. Here's some more volunteerism here. And that's the same thing we do then with each other. Do you have a need? Are you lonely? No, I'm good. What, you want to you sit down and talk? No, no, I think so. Are you, are you struggling with the sin? Well, you know, once in a while. You want to dig into that? You want to have some account? No, no, I, I'm pretty, I just got to get my, my act together. So self-reliance keeps us from receiving. Now, there's an antidote to self-reliance, and the antidote to self-reliance is humility. You're a wicked sinner, you're gonna be separated from God, eternally damned in hell if you don't receive salvation. And the very first thing we do in our, with God, the very first thing that initiates a relationship with God is we receive our salvation. Like me admitting that all that's true and I'm not a good person, I have to humble myself to do that. Do you have a, you have a financial need? I actually do. You have an emotional need, you need a friend? I actually do. You have a physical need, can I help you out? I actually, yeah, I actually need that. You have a spiritual need, yeah. I'm completely dependent on God. The second barrier is self-condemnation. This is where we have a terrible time believing that God loves us. Self-condemnation. Self-condemnation is just this idea that many of us are very convinced that God at best puts up with us. At best puts up with us. And we'll interact with each other this way. Uh, I, I could not tell you how many times over 20 years of being a pastor that I've got a, a phone call that's a legitimate emergency. Somebody's passed away or in the hospital dying or whatever. And somebody will call me that I know, like a friend of mine will call me in the middle of a legitimate emergency and the very first thing they'll do is this. They'll say what? I'm sorry for bugging you. And I'll have to look at them and say, no, I, I, actually, I actually want you to bug me in this. If you want to know what time Power Kids starts, don't call me, right? I will sick my children on you. But it, if there's a crisis, see, I, I would want to be in the, the middle of that with you. I'm sorry. Why would we apologize for needing? I'm not making that up. It's a crisis. It, it's a self-condemnation, see? Yeah, I, I don't, God doesn't really wanna bless me or help me or enjoy me. He just kinda is gonna hold his nose and let me into heaven. People don't wanna know my problems. People, I don't wanna burden anybody. I don't wanna, and it becomes a block. It keeps us from receiving. The flip side of that is a simple gratitude. Simple gratitude. See, I have a need. Thank you for your willingness to make. God, I have a need. Thank you for, God, I, I don't deserve your love. I can't earn your love. I'm not worthy of your love. Right? It's what grace is. It's unmerited favor. I love you anyways. 
Thank you, God. It doesn't even make sense to me, but thank you for loving me that way. The third barrier is self-centeredness. I struggle with this one. I am pretty enamored with myself. I'm serious. I hang out with myself all the time. I am, I am fascinating, right? But this is the idea of self-centeredness. Self-centeredness is this idea. Self-centeredness is the idea that I have a need and that need is so great that I will meet it no matter what it costs you. So I'm going to take what I perceive to be my need from you. I need to be interacted with this way, so I'm gonna make you interact with me this way. I need attention, so I'm gonna make you pay attention to me. I need uh, emotional support, so I'm gonna manipulate you. I'm gonna turn on the tears. I'm gonna make you support me emotionally. And what we do, I do this a lot, I, I rob people from the opportunity to actually give me something. Then we translate in this into our relationship with God and we think we do it with God. God, I need from you, so I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go to church, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put money in the basket, I'm gonna be a good boy, I'm gonna volunteer. Now you, my car better start. You better as if we're taking from, demanding from God. And the way that you get around that self-centeredness is trust. See, trust. God, you know I'm like this, right? I have this need, yep. And you love me, right? Yep. And you want that need to be met in me, right? Yep. All right. I'm gonna trust you. And I'm gonna wait for you to minister to me through somebody else instead of me demanding, okay? So God sees people, sees human beings through our strata of our humanity. Needs are a big deal to God because he sees those as as windows to express his heart. It's, It's how we know God loves us is what makes sense to us. And we are ministers of reconciliation. We don't regard people from a worldly point of view anymore. We are ambassadors. We actually go on God's behalf. And when people cry out to God, most of the time when God shows up in those circumstances, he shows up in the form of a Christ follower. When I understand that and I realize I'm walking into whatever relational context I am in, I'm walking into that context as a minister of reconciliation. That is who I am, that is what I do then I will no longer receive those needs as obligations. I hear them as alerts and understand that God is moving me to connect with that person. And then being a human being myself, I have needs. Every one of us does. I I need from God and God wants to minister to me in those needs and he's probably gonna send somebody else and I have to move away from a self-centeredness and a self-condemnation, a self-reliance and I am humble and trusting and grateful that God loves me in those ways. About 10 years ago, Heidi and I were on vacation in Florida with her parents and her brother and his family, and um, we're at the beach, and my mother-in-law was running down the beach playing with the kids, having a blast. She She was a crazy grandma, and so she was doing that, and um, the next day she had some migraines, which was not uncommon for her to have. And so the vacation was about over. And we, the three families went their separate ways, right? So they went back and her brother went back and Heidi and I were coming home. We came home a long way because we were going to visit some friends. <clears throat> when dad and mom got back up here, her migraine got so bad that she went to the emergency room and uh, they found... I think it was seven masses on her brain. She had a history of cancer. So we pretty quickly knew what it was. It was a brain cancer. And Heidi and I, I think we were in Atlanta and we got this call from dad. We were still on vacation and dad said, hey, he goes, you guys, you need to get home really quick. Um, He told us what happened. He's like, you need to get here. So Heidi and I just felt slugged in the gut. We were at a very crazy time in our life. Heidi was pregnant with our fourth child. We had three little ones at home. We were building our house 
and we were selling a house to move into this one, and then my parents were moving in with us back then, so they were selling it. So I had my family homeless, I had my parents homeless, I had a house under construction, if you've ever built a house. We had a, the church was three years old. We had, uh, Pastor Tom was our associate pastor, Ezra was an intern back then, Christy was part-time, that was, that was the staff. And little kids, and this terrible news. And I remember Heidi and I praying and I remember crying out to God and just thinking, God, we're in trouble. Like we are in trouble. There's, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in our life that we cannot press pause on. I, I can't delay the house. I can't, what am I, you know, I got everybody up, what, what are we gonna do? And mom's sick and the kids and Heidi's pregnant and, we prayed to God, came home. I remember calling on the way home, called Chris and Regina Amen. I said, hey guys, we're, we're gonna get home like in the middle of the night. We need, to, we need to literally drop the kids off and get to the Cleveland Clinic. It's that bad. We need help. Chris and Regina, oh, we'll be right there. Came over in the middle of the night. They kept our kids for like three days. I remember the house we were selling, the roof like blew up or something in the middle of that. I remember looking out one night and it's raining inside our house. And I called my friend Kenny Eagle. I said, Kenny, I need help. He came over, he tarped at him and Jim Heffel. Two 70-year-old guys got on my roof. While we were back before the, they re-roofed my house. We are at the hospital, right? I remember... Uh, we're building the new house. It's all happening at once, right? And Heidi and I put all of our hard surfaces, tile and hardwood on our floor. I remember calling Tom Sir Lewis. Hey, I need help, man. Tom coming over, laying hardwood in my house all hours of the night. I remember Ken and Debbie Keir called. I said, is there anything that we can do to re- alleviate any stress from you? I said, yeah. It was spring. I said, my, my yard is a mess. You have to know the relationship I have with my yard. It's very personal. <laughs> and I said, and they got a bunch of folks from church that just came and mowed and cleaned up our yard. You can't imagine the weight that took off of my shoulders, right? Remember, we were up at the hospital with mom doctor came in and said, uh, she's got this brain cancer everywhere. She, she's got three months to live. And it was, oh man. I mean, literally seven days before she was running down the beach with our kids. This was out of nowhere, right? And I remember Heidi and I just numb. If you've ever been through something like that, like, you, like I can't even get your brain to work. I remember going out in the parking lot and just crying and holding each other. You didn't know what else to do, Right? Got little kids at home, pregnant wife. Remember calling Pastor Tom and saying, dude, you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to preach for a while. We got it. Ezra, you're gonna have to do what you do for a while. Done. Remember the elders? I remember talking with the elders, Bob and Rick and Todd, and I said, I gotta move to Ashland. Mom died six weeks later, right? So. She had 24-hour care very quickly. I said, I got to move to Ashland for a month. Go. We'll handle the church. Because we're in trouble. I remember Heidi and I crying that night in the parking lot. And we called our best friends, Jason and Marcy Haymaker. They live up in Macedonia. And I, I said, Jason, we need to come over right now. He said, I, I got some people here. He goes, I'll get them out of my house. And you come over. You didn't know what was wrong. He said, come over right now. We went over right, right then. And I remember walking in the door and just grabbing my best friend and squeezing him for all he had. And he just hugged me back. And I knew what a hug from Jesus felt like. And we sat in their basement and we just cried and we 
told them and they cried with us. And they prayed with us and they sat there in awkward silence with us. They just needed help, right? And cried out to God. God showed up in very personal, tangible ways. He looked like his church. He looked like his followers. God, I need, we need to feel love. We need to feel comfort. God, I need my grass mode. <laughs> and all of a sudden, Jesus is riding the lawn tractor, giving us a hug, watching our kids. See how that works? Happens all the time. All the time. And, and this, this is how following Jesus plays out. When I'm consumed with his heart and his mind, how do I know who to serve? They'll tell you. They'll tell you all the time. This is what I need. I'm scared. I'm lo- I, this is what I need. God has heard their prayer and looks to his people. Go on my behalf. You're my ambassadors. You go as if I am there myself. And meet them at their point of need and draw them right through to my heart. Guys, as the band comes out, I think I think we'll just pray today, you know? And maybe encourage you to pray in these in a couple of ways. One Ask God what the needs are of the people around you that he wants you to minister to. Let me, let me dial you in a little bit. Those needs might sound like obligations or even demands. Shifting that paradigm, see. So ask God, Make that clear. I'm not talking about enabling. I'm not talking about any of that stuff. I'm talking about, God, are, are you alerting me? Help me through your Holy Spirit to dial in. The second prayer, I'm pretty sure is harder. God, what are you, what are you asking me to receive? Your, your, your spouse may be telling you in every way they can think of that they love you and you don't trust it. Your mom and dad might be telling you in every way they can think of that they love you. It just sounds like they won't let me use the car. Your friend, see, God. And if if you're like me, this is the hard one for me. I have a terrible time hearing this. I'm a very self-reliant, self-centered person. So asking God through his Holy Spirit, God, would you open up kind of my ears and my heart to receive who you are and how you want to work in my life? So think about it, pray about it, and ask God to help you reset your view of him and your view of how he's seeking to work in you.